You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge Knives. Now, Outdoor Edge has a large range of fixed and replaceable blade knives and game cleaning kits. Now, imagine this. You just shot a deer in the backcountry or an elk or whatever, and it's time to break it down right? It's hot. You're a long way from the truck. So time is a factor and you got to get the meat back to the truck. So there's no waste. Your blade becomes dull. So instead of having to stop and sharpen the blade, all you do is you take your outdoor edge knife, you push a button on the handle, the blade pops out, you put a new blade back in and you're back to work. You get back to the truck, there's no wasted meat, everybody wins. Now, if you want to find out more information about Outdoor Edge and their complete line of knives and game cleaning kits, all you have to do is go to OutdoorEdge.com and when you check out or you decide you want to purchase a knife, enter the discount code NATION30 and you're going to save 30% off of your purchase. That's NATION30 and that's OutdoorEdge.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, whenever you're listening to this. Hopefully everybody is having a great day, month, year, whatever. It's the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. It's brought to you by Vortex Optics. And we have another really interesting episode for you today. Today I'm joined by Nicole Qualtieri. Now, Nicole is an editor for GearJunkie.com. And we met at the ATA show this past year, and she's been on a couple panels, and we have both been in some of these meetings that's been put on by the ATA to find ways that the media and influencers, I hate that term, but influencers can help properly promote hunting to shed light to people who might not be hunters to say, hey man, you should really check out hunting. And so that's the connection between me and today's guest. But it's a really awesome episode, right? And I think what I really liked about this conversation is her journey into hunting. It wasn't a traditional uh, journey, you know, like, hey, she had a friend who took her hunting. She got a job within the hunting industry Then she, through her connections and whatnot, she found out that this, this passion, this love that hunters have for animals, you know, and her story is really unique. And I, and that's why I wanted to share it with you guys today. So what are we going to do? We're going to share her story. I'm going to talk to you about, I got to do a commercial real quick. So today we're going to talk about the Average Conservationist. The Average Conservationist is an apparel company. They make some badass t-shirts. They make some badass hoodies, some badass hats. My favorite hat um, are the trucker style hats with the patches on them. Uh, There's one that that I really like, but right now my son has kind of taken a liking to it. So he wears it all over the place. It is a camel hat with a patch on it that has a broad head. It's the average conservationist. Now, it's more than just badass apparel with cool logos on it. It is a company that when they started, they made the decision to give 10% of their profits back 
to conservation. So just by wearing one of their t-shirts or wearing one of their hats, you are responsible for giving back to conservation just by purchasing their products, you know, in an indirect way. So if you want to find out more information about what these guys do for their uh, their giving back to conservation, what organizations, and find out more about the products that these guys have out, go ahead and check out theaverageconservationist.com and... Dude, I'm telling you, it's some pretty kick-ass gear. So, other than that, let's get into today's. Man, I don't even want to know. I don't even know what to call this. I think I'm going to call it kind of a hunter profile podcast. But we're going to be talking with Nicole Qualtieri, and that episode starts right now. In three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Miss Nicole Qualtieri. Nicole, how we doing? I'm doing really good. How are you, Dan? Can't complain, man. I uh, I believe the first time I ever met you was at a piano bar at the ATA show. I think that oh, was... Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember if that was the the after we had the ATA media meeting or before, but that was the first time I ever met you, so I, I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, um, I... Uh, was really enjoying myself that night. So, <laughs> I think we all were. I would say that, like, I definitely, um, I'm sorry that that's the place that you had to meet me for the first time. Uh, no, don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> that's what with the lacrosse team. They yeah. feed you a lot of champagne. And <laughs> if you're me, you get really sassy at the piano bar with everyone. So yeah. that's like, that's generally like uh, what happened. But, yeah, yeah, that, that was a fun night. Yeah, uh, a hard next day though. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you what, <laughs> I, I've kind of I, I try to at least, especially at the ATA show, I, I've kind of learned my lesson over the years to where, and even in the the smaller trade shows that I go to, where you just got to talk yourself into going to bed early because it's it's not worth it the next day but then sometimes you get pulled into an event like that and uh you just you go with the flow well so like one of my best girlfriends and i got dinner together she works for lacrosse and so i think that's where like trade shows can get like a little bit out of control because you're with people that you really love and (laughs) yeah you only get to see them every once in a while and um, I'm like you, I tend like at shot show. I think I was in bed every night by like nine thirty or 10, so, like, <laughs> but you know, after I, I will say that like this past January, so I went to a shot show. I went to, I can't even remember what other trade show I went to and ATA. And it was like three weeks of just constant trade show. And I think at ATA, I was just done, you know? Yeah. So yeah, at some point you just sort of, uh, you know, it's, it becomes too much, and it's very easy to just um, get into that. <laughs> yeah, I have. Anyway. Uh, I haven't made the the trip to the shots show yet, and I just don't feel like me in Las Vegas would ever get along under any rules and regulations. Just, I just, I don't even know if I ever want to visit that town. Um, it's really good until you get together with like all of the outdoor writers that you like really know and love. And somehow you stay up until five o'clock in the morning because you haven't seen the sun in four days. Yeah. And then miss your six o'clock flight, which is what I did two years ago. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of good stories that come out of trade shows. Yeah. I feel you. I feel that's the truth. Well, we're going to, we're going to pull a hard pivot here and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about your introduction into hunting cuz i think it's it's a unique uh not only being a female but being new quote unquote new and or having a cool story of not necessarily coming from a hunting family or or, or being a hunter and now becoming a hunter i think you have a really cool story and before we get into that why don't we talk a little bit about where do you live and what do you do for a living yeah, sure. So um, I live in um, Butte, Montana, which people, my family is actually from Butte, but I didn't grow up here. I'm I'm from Ohio and Colorado, really. Um, 
but uh, people in Butte call it Butte America. It's kind of its own little country in the middle of Montana. Um, and pretty small town. Um, lots of really great hunting and fishing nearby, though. Um, and I am the hunting and fishing editor for GearJunkie.com. Um, and people on the outdoor rec side are probably a little bit more familiar with Gear Junkie. Um, you know, we discuss everything from skiing to road running to um, travel to um, hiking and backpacking, like really an all-inclusive outdoor rec site. And for us, that also means including hunting and fishing. So um, it's a really great place to work. I love my coworkers. My team is great. I'm one of four hunters and anglers on our team. So there aren't aren't very many of us, but it's great because we have like a great diversity of perspective. Um, and I get to talk a lot um, from the perspective of being a newer hunter, like helping people get into hunting and making sure that like what we put out is if someone who is a trail runner sees a hunting article that they want to read, that it's going to be a welcoming place for them and not one that feels insular or confusing. So, yeah. um, I really love that aspect of my job. Yeah. And the, the connection that we're making here is that, you know, at the ATA show this year, and even, I think it was last week or the week before the ATA, uh, held kind of a, a little meeting or a little gathering of media. I don't want to say influence influencers. Cause I actually hate I absolutely hate that word influencer, but uh, people within the media that are in the hunting industry in some way, shape or form, or in the hunting community, some way, shape or form about ways that we can help promote hunting to new hunters. And you gave a little presentation there uh, and uh, that that's this connection. That's why I reached out to you and said, Hey, why don't you come on the, on the podcast and tell your story? So I think, oh, thank you. So I think what I want to do is I want to start all the way at the very beginning. And the first question, knowing that you necessarily weren't a hunter, what, when was your first experience? I mean, did you come from an outdoor family at all? Did you know anybody that was a hunter growing up? What was your life like before you became curious about hunting? So weirdly enough, I so I grew up in like kind of on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio. So like pretty like rural community. I've been um, my family is definitely not an outdoorsy family, um, but I've always been the outdoorsy person in my family. And I played sports and rode horses and, um, you know, did that. And a lot of my friends out there um, were deer hunters. Um so kind of interestingly enough, like my best guy friend hunted whitetails with his family every year, and he just wanted me to be able to come to hunting camp. So I was actually in the process of signing up for my hunter's education um, when we ended up moving halfway through my junior year of high school to Colorado. So it was less about hunting and more about like going and hanging out with my best friend's family. Um, but I didn't have like a bad uh like, I ate venison at friends' houses growing up. Um, you know, Ohio has a really cool whitetail community um, and hunting community. And so I was adjacent to it, and I wasn't, certainly wasn't against it, you know. Um, but then we moved to Colorado, and, um, and, and so that was sort of not uh, on the table anymore. Um, so... I don't think that I really thought about hunting again until um, my twenties when my mom ended up marrying someone who was a hunter. And so like, I always got had wild game in my freezer and like, got to hear these great stories about going on these mountain trips to, you know, hunt elk and, um, and my stepbrothers were really big into hunting. So it was fun to talk to them. Um, and then kind of around the age of like 20, and I said this on the ATA um, uh, panel, um, I read an essay by Tom McGuane, which was, it's called Heart of the Game, and it was in the initial um, outside 
magazine, like the very first um, issue that they published, um, it was the the feature article in there. So um, I think that was 1978 that the article came out. And I randomly picked up this book and have always been a voracious reader. And um, McGuane's experience hunting in Montana and the way that he explained it um, like really gave me an empathetic view for hunting and what hunting could be um, and kind of like set the scenario. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that like when um, in 2015, 2014, um, I found a position online for a show called Meat Eater, which like I had no um, I had no understanding of it or like who Steve Ranella was at that point. But they had a Craigslist ad for a social media um, community manager. And I'm not sure that I would have considered working for a hunting show, like, had I not had those previous experiences, you know? Um, And I actually did a lot of research before I took the job because I didn't want to um, get into a position where I felt like that integrity wasn't a, a value within that particular media outlet and um yeah that kind of changed a lot for me okay so you it sounded sounds like to me like you were just getting ready to get your feet wet with hunting before a move forced you to go to Colorado were there any opportunities in Colorado or in your early twenty, or in your twenties, or you know, however old you are now, between the time you went to Colorado and you went to Montana, where you could have gotten your feet wet again. Um, I had friends in college that were waterfowl hunters, um, but <laughs> um, uh, a few of them had GSPs that were just not very well trained and not fun to be around because <laughs> they were college dogs. Um, and so like, it wasn't really something that like, I, I didn't understand it. And it was, um, something that we all kind of like teased each other about more than anything. So it's sort of funny that I like, I really love waterfowl hunting now. Um, but no, you know, um, I didn't have a ton of exposure to it in Colorado. And at that point, um, I didn't really have any interest in it. I mean, I'll be totally clear. The only reason I was going to get my hunting license was so that I could go to my friend's hunting camp and hang out with his family. It wasn't like um, I'd never shot a, I didn't shoot a gun until I was 30 years old. So okay. um, I didn't, I grew up around guns um, and I grew up like respecting guns, but um, I, you know, that wasn't really like a like a crux of interest for me. Yeah. So you, as a, as a a non hunter at that point in your life, your outlook at hunting wasn't necessarily so bad because you had, um, I guess, I guess you had a, a foot in the door, so to speak, or, um, you had insight through your friends who were hunters right? Do you think that that made it easier for you to eventually take that jump into becoming a hunter? Um, not really. I think, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back. So when I, when I moved to Montana in 2012, um, I wasn't really an outdoors person. Like, like I said, I've ridden horses my whole life. Like I'm still an equestrian. Um, you know, I hiked a little bit in Colorado, but when I got to Montana, I really got into the outdoors, um, started hiking in 2014. I backpacked 150 miles on the Continental Divide Trail by myself. Um, and that was kind of like a post. I left corporate America, which I'd been working in for like five years at that point, And I really wanted to change not only my uh my life but like my profession and my career and um there's something about montana where like the landscape is just really accessible like hiking is everywhere i'm looking out my window right now at public land like it's just all around you you know it's it's hard to avoid almost yeah. <laughs> like this idea of like con- constant recreation where like when i was living in denver you know i lived in downtown denver 
um, I actually did stand-up comedy. That was my hobby then. (laughs) And, yeah. Um, And so, like, I was, like, the furthest thing you could be from, like, an outdoors person. You know, like, I didn't know a spike bull from a cow, you know? Like, so, so the education was swift and fierce when it came. And, like, the, the reality is, is that when I was backpacking by myself, I was having a lot of these really intense experiences with wildlife. Um, This was before I had a dog. So I was like literally just out on the trail, like in grizzly country by myself, (laughs) like um, hiking like 14, 15 miles a day, you know? Um, And I had like a really incredible experience where I was eating dinner at the top of this valley and like kind of had tucked my tent up against the lodgepole pine and I had over a hundred elk walk out in front of me while I was eating dinner, like right as the sun was going down. Um, and those elk grazed around my tent all night, like mewing and talking and playing. And there were like coyotes, like yodeling in the distance and like perfect starry, like summer night. It was just like, it's one of those nights that like just stay with you forever, you know? Um, and after that, I like was, you know, spent a lot of time walking and I'm like, who gets to do this? Like who gets to have these really intimate connections with animals and like understand where they are and what are they doing? I mean, I just walked through that forest and there was a herd of a hundred elk, you know, probably like within a couple hundred yards and I had no idea they were there, you know? Um, And so my curiosity was really piqued by that. Um, and really, like, serendipitously, it was just a couple months later that I ended up getting the meteor job. So, I mean, one thing that I tell people is uh, my learning curve is very different than, like, most new hunters because I ended up working in the industry, you know. Um, and, like, would I have had an outlet to learn how to hunt had I, you know, not taken that path? Or, like, what I would have followed that intuition about hunting, like, I'm not sure, you know, I can't go back and relive that part of my life and, like, know how it would have turned out. So, yeah. like, but six years later, I, I am a hunter, Okay. You know? um, and I'm still in the industry, so. Um, so, let me ask you this, what came, but, what, what came first, you picking up that book and reading it, or your job with Meat Eater? Oh, the book. That the was book, like okay. Okay. So, the book is... Um, the book is, um, I have it on my shelf right now. It's um, the best of outside 21st, 25 years. So like the book isn't about hunting at all. It's about um, the feature essays that, you know, like Annie Prue wrote and Ed Abbey wrote for Outside Magazine. Um, and the lead feature of that book is Tom McGuinn's essay about hunting. But the rest of the story isn't about hunting the rest of that book isn't about hunting at all. So okay. I, I certainly okay. wasn't picking up a book about hunting and expecting to read about, you know, how hunting can be a serious and like really spiritual pursuit. But that was just the first short story, first essay, like in that collection. And, and it's just stuck with me. It always has. Um, he's become one of my favorite writers. Okay. So how, yeah. how long until, you pick that book up and you become inspired by these words until you started to take the steps to become a hunter. Well, I will say that the essay didn't inspire me to become a hunter. So I like want to make that clear. Okay. Like what it, what it showed me was that a hunter could have empathy for animals. Okay. You know what I mean? So like, I realized that there could be a different kind of hunter than a lot of the hunters that I had been around, which talked about you know Boone and Crockett records and stuff like that like um that was more of like the attitude that I was exposed to like less about the meat like it was awesome for me to have elk and bison and all that stuff in my freezer but you know um that essay changed what a hunter could be in my mind and it it didn't make me want to hunt like honestly like I didn't want to own a gun. I didn't want to shoot a gun. You know, like I was definitely a person who was like, like if you would have told me even after reading that essay that I would be sitting in a house with 
guns right now, I would tell you that you were crazy or that I was going to hunt, you know, like yeah. I, I had no interest in killing an animal. Um, you know, I've been, I've been around big animals my whole life. Um, and I've seen how they die and it's, it can be really hard, right? Like, you know, I've had favorite horses die and been around there for accidents and all that kind of stuff. So like the, I, at that point, like, I just wasn't ready to like emotionally even think about it, you know, but I really think it was that backpacking trip where I had all this downtime and all this time to just move across the landscape and understand wildlife and understand what it means to be in the mountains and to spend that kind of time there. Um, you know, I, I felt like a really intense, um, I don't know, connection to the ecosystem. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And that, and that was what made me curious to be a hunter. Yeah. I think like all that previous knowledge was helpful. It's like, okay, like I don't have to be hunting something for the size of its antlers. Like I can hunt something because I'm curious about its behavior and I'm curious about its, you know, like about putting food in my freezer. You know, that, that was really the lesson that I took for meat eater was, um, you know, sea change from talking about hunting in a way that people can understand from the food perspective. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that all those little things were additive to allowing me to be curious about it rather than me being like, okay, well now I want to hunt, you know, like that didn't happen until it happened inside of me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. That sounds that sounds really frou-frou. Yeah, <laughs> hey, I'll, so true. I'll tell you what, man. I I didn't grow up in a hunting family. I became interested in hunting kind of on my own um, through. I guess my uncles did some hunting, but I lived so far away from them that uh, you know I didn't really have necessarily a, a mentor, so to speak. So I I had to do a lot of learning on my own. Then I hit high school. I didn't hardly hunt at all, went to college, hunted even less. And then just like you said, I, I picked up my bow, my old bow, went out to the woods one day and, and just had this, I didn't even see a deer. I just had this perfect scenario play out in front of me where it was like the most beautiful October sunset in the, you know, the, the leaves are all bright colors. It's like a yellow hue in the sky, just like, and then the noise and this, the air and the smells and the taste and, and the visual that all played like this, this connection, like you said, to the ecosystem is, is what hooked me to getting back out. And and I said to myself, man, I got, I got to spend as much time doing this as I possibly can. And that was kind of a, a re-triggering of my passion for the outdoors. Now, the 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 next question I have for you. So all all these things have kind of started to get your curiosity to boil. Was it you yourself who started taking the steps, or did you have a little help from somebody else, kind of pushing you into becoming a hunter? Um. So, like my best girlfriend in Bozeman, um, she grew up in a hunting family and she grew up hunting and she um, invited me to go shooting with her. And so like we went out with her and her now husband and a bunch of friends and like, I got to shoot her grandma's 308 and her grandma's a pretty incredible woman. Um, Like she hunted elk by herself in the scapegoat wilderness and the Bob Marshall wilderness for 50 years. And um, so there was this like also a really strong story of like, um, kind of a matriarchal hunting family, I guess, like um, in Lindsay's history and tradition. And so like they sort of made the firearms thing like open to me and like got to go out and shoot. Uh, and I had a lot of fun doing that. And then, um, I mean, going, working for Meat Eater, I mean, you know, so in December of 2014, I start working for Meat Eater and I'm sitting six feet away from Giannis Patelis, who like in my mind is, like one of the most knowledgeable people like that I've ever met in the hunting world and has like a very like kind and 
connected way of talking about it. Um, and I was basically, you know, I was managing their social media community. So I'm consistently fielding questions. I was a total non hunter at that point. So like, I didn't know how to respond. So I like was basically asking a <laughs> hundred questions a day, like, and really absorbing it and learning it and figuring it all out. Um, and then, so fall of 2015 was my first hunting season and I did like all the hunters ed and really practiced shooting, got my first gun. Um, Giannis would take me out shooting. Um, like we'd meet at the range before work. So, you know, I had like, I had people that were willing to help me out, you know? Um, but it was like on my own volition, you know, like there was nobody like there, like, like Giannis would be like, I'm going shooting at seven o'clock in the morning. Does anyone want to go? And we'd like meet him out there, you know? So like, um, I mean, you can't really ask for a better position to be in. As <laughs> like, you know, um, between like Giannis and Steve and everyone else that worked there. I mean, there were a lot of us that were new hunters. If you go back to, I think like, like, I think it's in the first 30 Mediator episodes. Um, there's a, there's a podcast of the three of us. Um, like, three girls that work there talking about our first season's hunting. So um, there was certainly a lot of space to learn. And it was like, um, I don't know. I don't want to like beat a dead horse. It was a great place to learn. Yeah. And, I, and I had like people that would take me and Giannis took me on my first deer hunt, um, you know, and um, it was another hunt just before work. We got up at like four o'clock in the morning. Like we were in the office by eight. And, um, I, we had a deer kind of pop up on us at like 20 yards. And when I went to put up my gun, I couldn't find her in the scope, but my scope was turned like to 12 X, you know, like it was completely like on the high end of magnification. So I couldn't find her in my scope and Giannis just turned on the magnification and he was like, all right, there's a lesson, you know, like, and, and that's really just how I've taken it um there's always something to learn yeah you know um and and i've been able to pack my last two bucks out of the backcountry and public land by myself so um i think the learning curve is faster than we give it credit for okay um yeah let me let me ask you this what kind of conversations did you have in your head at the time where you know and i think this is where a lot of people you know, we, we always talk about this disconnect between where our food comes from, right? We can go to McDonald's, somebody will hand us a hamburger through the drive through and we eat it without even thinking about where that meat came from, right? So yeah. the general public, I would say, has a big disconnect about where, where meat specifically comes from and how many people touch it and that an animal actually has to die in order for you to enjoy that hamburger or steak or chicken sandwich or whatever what kind of conversations did you have with yourself about this realization that if i'm going to become a hunter i have to kill something um it was something i didn't know that i was going to be able to do you know what i mean like like um i love animals like animals are part of my daily life i mean you know i went out and fed my horse this morning and um, like, you know, my, my animals are always all around me and, you know, I love seeing wildlife. Like I get so excited to see a bear. Like, I get, you know, I still get really excited about those things. Like there's a real like childlike sense of awe and wonder for me around wildlife. And, um, and luckily like I'm on a landscape, I get to see them every day, you yeah. know, like all winter, there's a herd of 40 elk that live out with my horse. So like, um, it's very constant in this world that I'm in. I, you know, I knew that it was going to take me looking through the scope, having an animal on the other end and seeing if I could pull the trigger. And, and I knew I had to get to that point, you know, like I wasn't going to second guess myself because I didn't know who I was going to be in that situation. But when it came down to it, I could, you know, yeah. And, and I could live with the consequences of it. Yeah. So I think that like, the emotional weight 
of hunting is something that like especially adults like men and women you know like people of any race or ethnicity are going to take into account if that's not something they've done before like like killing is not you know unless you're a part of our military like like shooting guns and killing doesn't really exist on our landscape other than within hunting you know yeah or like industrial meat or like you know these other worlds that are very shut off to us i mean we live in like we live in a society that has a very high value on life yeah you know so um and and a lot of anxiety around death yeah so that's a fact we have to like right like we have to take that into account when we talk about it we have to take that into account when we're listening to why people are upset about hunting like um they have valid reasons um and i think we need to have empathy for that yeah i agree i agree i I feel it's weird you know i come from a farming families right and there was livestock on on the farm and you know, we didn't necessarily take everything to, I, I won't say my mom and dad were farmers, but I grew up on a farm. Like my grandparents were my babysitters. So I watched death all the time, whether it was, you know, typical farming where, you, you know, it's time to kill a pig and eat it. It's time to kill a cow and eat it or a chicken and eat it. And, and, uh, so I feel like in a way I was desensitized at an early age about, death because I knew where I knew where everything came from. And I, I can remember feeling sorry, maybe the first time I witnessed it. But then after that, it was just, this is how life is. This is, this is how it goes. So when you did pull that gun up for the first time, what was going through your head? I mean, were you, were you thinking about that animal's life or were you more concentrated on like, was most of your concentration on pulling the trigger for a quick ethical kill? Uh, well, the first time I shot it on an animal, I missed it completely. So, um, I think, like, um, that moment was more about the curiosity, am I going to pull the trigger? Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, it's so overwhelming to be in that position. And then, like, the first year that I ended up killing was a very weird situation and um and i took a bad shot initially out of that adrenaline and and part of that adrenaline is wanting to take the best shot that you can but at the end of the day you're also a beginner right and so like that sense of okay like i have this opportunity and i'm gonna take it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a perfect opportunity. Do you know what? Like, it is very hard to be a beginner and be good at something. Like, it's very hard. You know, like, like the last two shots that I've taken on deer have both been great shots. Like, but it took going through it a couple times, like, to understand it, you know? I, I don't know how to put words to that other than just you get better with time. Yeah. Being able to calm yourself down. Um, but what about the emotions, you know, think, what about the emotions towards the, the animal? Cause you, you know, you mentioned that you, you love animals, right? And yeah. you, you end up killing this animal. Did you have a sense of like remorse? Did you sec- have second thoughts about, Hey man, is this really for me? Or did you have this deep connection at, right off the bat? I mean, I still have thoughts, is this really for me? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I feel like if you're hunting and you're really, like, considering what's on the other end of your rifle, like, that should be a question that we're always thinking about. Like, like, you know, how committed am I to, like, the life on the other end of this, you know, boom stick? Like, it's, it's, it, it has value. Like, yeah. um, I think, uh, I, I just think, so I'll, I'll explain it in my past two books. So uh, my 2017, and I, I didn't kill anything last year. I've been going through like some pretty serious like knee problems and I've had a bunch of surgeries. So last year was kind of a wash for me. Um, so my 2017 buck that I killed, I killed him after hunting for nine days by myself in Montana. 
Um, I was doing day trips and hunting out of camp. And um, I really, really hunted hard. And I put a lot of miles on the ground. And I had a couple opportunities, but, like, they didn't feel perfect. Um, and so I wasn't going to risk putting an animal in a position that I didn't want to put it in. Um, so on that last day, I'm on a high ridge in an area called the Lee Metcalf Wilderness. And I had actually, it was like 50 mile per hour winds. It was really cold uh, by myself. And I'd hiked like six miles. And so I was, I just, I just decided to go back to the car. I'd actually unloaded my gun and put it in my pack um, and was just going to hike down um, and came over this hill and there were 14 mule deer just right in front of me. And so I ended up, um, there were two bucks in the herd and this is an area where you can't kill does. So um, there was a, there was a bigger buck, like a bigger, nicer buck. And then there was a porky that was like good, good sized body, but like obviously a younger buck, but he gave me like a perfect broadside shot at like 72 yards. And I took it and he was dead so quickly that like, I, I didn't cry. Like I teared up. And I was just so grateful that, like, the death was swift and that there was minimal suffering. And I had a lot of work to do, you know, to get that deer off the mountain. So um, in that scenario, I really, like, the majority of the emotion that I felt was just being grateful, you know. Um, but my next deer that I killed in 2018, and that one happened really fast, right? Like, I only had, like, I had like two minutes to make a decision. Like I'm going to get my gun out. I'm going to load my gun and I'm, you know, going to kill this deer. And I did. So like the next year, um, I didn't have as much time to hunt, you know, so I didn't really get to spend as much time on the landscape. The season was ending that weekend. I'd been at like a ton of trade shows and just like my hunting season was just felt like a wash. I was pretty frustrated with the fact that, like, I hadn't been able to hunt very much um, and be outside, like, in that place that I really loved. And um, I made myself a promise that the first animal that I had an ethical shot on, I was going to take it no matter what. And so, like, I camped out, ended up finding a pretty nice buck. He was about a mile and a half away in sagebrush. I was in eastern Montana, you know, so I figured I was going to blow him. Um, and I ended up walking like in on him to 90 yards. So I, you know, over the course of like an hour and a half or two hours, I walked him super slowly, ended up getting a shot at 97 yards. Um, but I had kind of like grown attached to him at that point because I'd been watching him for so long, you know? Um, and I like, I like cried from like the deep well of my soul when I killed that deer. <laughs> like I was just like beside myself and I was, I almost felt like disgusted with myself when I walked up to him and like, it took a little while for that to wear off. Um, and I think part of that was just like, I hadn't done enough hunting. I didn't feel like I had really earned, <laughs> earned it, you know, like. There, there were a lot of, like, things at that point. And the thing was, it was a perfect, perfect shot. Like, double lung, like, just immediately downed him. Like, you know, dead within a minute. Like, um, nice buck. Uh, and um, that kill was just hard for me. But I think it was a reflection of a lot of other things that were going on. You know, like, I don't think that it was a reflection on that particular you know, I don't think it was a reflection on hunting or killing, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's hard to put into words. Yeah. You know, um, and then I got a chance to like go waterfowl hunting and I had so much fun, you know, like I went out and I like went goose hunting, um, and duck hunting and went on some really great trips with some really great people for work. And I was like, wow, like this can be fun. Yeah. You know, like for me, big game hunting is not necessarily fun you know like killing a big game animal to me is a big responsibility 
so then I was like, I sort of got into like an ethical questioning with myself, like, because I think a lot about like the hierarchy of animals. And I think that like in hunting, there should be like an equality, right? Like we hunt deer for wildlife management. We hunt black bears for wildlife management. You know, like there's the big argument about grizzly bears. Like I'm for hunting grizzly bears for the purpose of wildlife management and like for, you know, understanding that there shouldn't be a hierarchy across species, you know, um, that it should come down to science and management. So um, when I actually was having fun, like killing geese and ducks, it was like, okay, like how is this different from killing a deer for me? Yeah. You know, it just weighed on me a lot differently. And that, that was an interesting experience. So I don't know. I'm like, I'm clearly very heady. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, my wife, um, I don't think she will ever feel comfortable shooting a deer. She may come out and try, but I feel like there's something that will happen in the last moment where she may not go through with it. Hell, she might, uh, that's, that's on her, but yeah, but it's easy for her to kill a turkey. I mean, she's killed, she's killed five turkeys. Um, and I, when I asked her about it, I said, Hey, you know, why is it so easy for you to shoot a turkey? And it's so difficult for you to, uh, shoot a deer. And she said, just the way they look straight up, like (laughs) turkeys are ugly and they're a bird and an animal like the deer is like majestic and it has these big eyes and it's beautiful and you know, it, it owns the woods and it approaches different and it leaves different, you know, like, so uh, do you think that there's that, you know, knowing that, that if you're, if we're going to get non more non hunters into hunting, is there a different path than coming straight to deer hunting or big game? You know, a lot of my girlfriends said they'd be fine going bird hunting, but they never want to kill big game. And I think that that's a really interesting, uh, I think that once you have, it's hard because I did it backwards, right? Like I went immediately into deer hunting, <laughs> like, um, but like, I was also thinking about the meat, right? Right. So like, um, I'm not saying that you can't get a lot of meat from birds. You certainly can if you have a great day, but like it's never going to be, you know, packing 80 pounds of meat out on your back, <laughs> like, you know? Um, so it, it, um, I don't know. I mean, here's my thing about recruiting people. I like you and I both had similar experiences where we had a really intrinsic moment in the outdoors where we were like, Oh, right. Like I need to do this, you know, like, like this is clearly a part of who I am. And that's like something that I need to go explore right like want to go explore the woods and like have these experiences with wildlife like i think if you want to expose people to the idea of hunting like they first have to have those experiences outside that are like spiritual but benign i guess like i i don't think that like i don't think you're ever going to recruit someone to hunting that doesn't have a baseline understanding about what happens in outdoor spaces. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and killing something is like really personal. So like people really have to like do, most people have to do like some level of an emotional work to understand that, you know, like, like even guns are something for people to get over, you know, like, I'll say that once I started shooting a bow, I became a lot more excited about hunting. You know, like I love shoot. I would much rather go shoot my bow all day than go to the range and shoot my rifle. Like <laughs> one, it doesn't like kick. You know, it's it's a totally different experience. And like, I don't know. Like I, I've had that like conversation with a lot of women, and they feel the same way. Like guns just hold like a different space in our public imagination. You know, there's so much like political controversy around them that like people don't understand them as a tool. Yeah. And that was something that I had to get over before I decided to hunt. Yeah, that's a good point. 
that's a good point, especially for the the people in maybe bigger cities or more of an urban area that yeah, they, absolutely. they they have to they 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 may have grown up with a negative connotation about guns their whole life like the only time that they saw a gun was either by a police officer or by a criminal right so yeah. so yeah that makes a lot of sense now when when we talk about you know this uh the the recruitment do you feel, and we, we talk about the media within the hunting industry, right? You were not a hunter. You came into the hunting industry and then became a hunter. What are your thoughts on the, the hunting industry and how good or bad of a job that they are currently doing in what, we, what, what, what we're putting out there as far as media to new hunters. And what I mean by that is my, my, my uh, introduction into hunting media was first off, it was magazines like outdoor life and field and stream. You get, you get it and then you become curious. So then you start buying the videos and the videos that I would always buy were the whack them, stack them five minutes in a tree stand, big buck comes through, shoot them, you know, uh, big bucks or you know like real trees monster bucks or whatever and it's just a whack them stack them mentality and right. w- working for meat eater it is a little bit different because they go into a little bit more detail about the process of the kill and hunting and, and focus on the food where does the where does the the hunting industry as a whole stand do you think yeah so i would say that this has been and to be clear, I've been working in the media industry for six years now. So mm-hmm. like my, my position on this has evolved so much, right? Like coming in as a non-hunter, there were a lot of things that I was like horrified at and then eventually was able to really understand context, right? Um, and I think we we talked about that a lot on that ATA panel um, about the idea of context within what we put out there. But I also think that there's a space for hunters to have their insular moments, right? Like I, I understand like that there are a lot of people who are more of that, like whack them and stag mentality. And like, I don't necessarily like, I personally am not going to um, consume that kind of media, but like, I understand that there's an audience for it. Um, does it hurt our, like hunting as a whole, I think sometimes it does. Um, I think that, you know, when the wrong thing goes viral, like it, it has consequences for the hunting community on a whole, right? Like, um, but I also think that um, if people are conscientious consumers, then there's hunting media out there right now that didn't maybe exist 20 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I think that the good thing about what social media has done for hunting is that it's democratized it. You know, like you have a lot more people that are food focused, like Renella or Hank Shaw, you know, um, like Danielle Pruitt, it, like does a lot of amazing food stuff, like for meat eater. Um, and there are people that are like bringing hunting into the conversation, you know, like Anthony Bourdain went hunting um, in Montana for one of his shows a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, like meat eater is actually a part of that production company. That's the production company that I worked for. So, um, I think that like when, I think when hunting media comes from a collaboration between hunters and non-hunters, we see things that are really different, you know? And I think that's where meat eater started. I don't, I mean, I've taken some public issue with meat eaters issues with representation, at the moment, but that doesn't mean that I don't still stand by a lot of the media that they've put out over the long term, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there are places, I think social media does democratize hunting media a lot. And I think that anyone can find the community that they belong to within that sphere. You know, for me, it was the meat eater crew. It was backcountry hunters and anglers where I also worked 
um, like Artemis Sportswomen, um, and really just the sort of community around conservation um, gave me a place to be that wasn't, you know, that sort of very uh, testosterone-fueled world of hunting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Let me ask you this. Um, Let me ask you this. Because every once in a while, you'll, you'll, you know, especially during the hunting season, you'll scroll through Instagram and you'll see a picture of, and, I, and I've been, I've been uh, guilty of this in the past, or, you know, I've shared content like this where I will show uh, a picture of the heart or a picture of the lung where the broadhead has gone through, right? And for a non hunter, someone may look at that and go, oh my God, I can't believe that they posted that picture. And me, a seasoned hunter, and all my other seasoned hunter friends will look at that and go, great shot. You know what I mean? Great shot. Great shot. Yeah. Has your view on imagery that may be gruesome or grotesque six or seven years ago changed? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I killed my first deer, uh, the first picture that I put out was actually a cleaned heart, intact with thyme and garlic by it on like a wood cutting board. <laughs> so like it was a very different kind of heart picture, yeah. you know, like that was the first thing that I ate from my deer. And like the response that I got was amazing from like, from my non hunter friends who are like, you know, a lot of my non hunter friends are like, what is going on with you? Like, why are you hunting? <laughs> you know? Um, but like, it's also opened them all up to the idea of hunting as like, as a pursuit of integrity, yeah, you know, like that it can be like heartfelt and that it can be a whole human experience that like respects the animal holistically. And I'm not saying that I do things perfectly. I, I certainly don't, but like as a communicator, I'm very, very aware that the majority of my like followers on Instagram, that the majority of my friends on Facebook, that like the majority of my social circle is still people that don't hunt, Yeah, you know? Um, so like I have a deep empathy for where they are at with their education on what hunting is. Um, but I also know a lot of people that grew up in traditional hunting communities that like they were only surrounded by hunters. So like they didn't really have to worry about that context. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that showing meat and showing an animal and showing like a heart shot is important. You know, I think it's important for people to understand that this is a life. I think it's important for them to know that, like, people are showing that because it was, like, a, a very ethical, a quick death for that animal, you know? Um, but, like, we're the ones who are responsible to put that language around it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I can't do that for you, you know? Um, and, and still, at the end of the day, you're also going to have a lot of people that don't want to have that empathy or don't want to have that sort of they don't want to be a teacher like right like and that's also fine like it shouldn't be on every hunter to be an ambassador for the sport i think the unfortunate nature of the world that we live in is that if your instagram is public and like you have a lot of facebook friends from different backgrounds then like you are by default an educator yeah whether you know, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, um, this has been a very interesting conversation, Nicole, and I I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come on and share your your uh, road to becoming oh, a yeah. hunter. Is, is this something that just continues to grow for you? I mean, are you are you in it deep now? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean. I was checking, I've been like waiting for the pronghorn tags to come out. You know, I think I have, I just have a pile of tags this year. And um, after going through a couple of knee surgeries and starting to feel healthy again, like there's nothing that like gets me more excited than fall. You know, like last September I got within 40 yards of a cow elk on a social, on a, on a solo archery hunt, you know, like stuff like that is like food for my soul. Yeah. And um, like at the end of the day, like, uh, I'd certainly love to have the meat in the freezer, but the experience is um, just as important. And it's that thing that I've been working towards. So 
yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in a way, like, hunting is kind of a small percentage of my life um, on a day-to-day basis, but um, it's also part of my profession, um, and I'm really excited to be able to communicate that to people. Like, to me, um, it's, you know, like, we all come from hunters. Um, we wouldn't be here without, like, the connection that we have to wildlife and um, like I said, the ecosystem. And I think that's a story that is still worth being told. And um, I hope that like when people realize uh, that they're telling that story, like they they will take into account that like there are hearts and minds that will change when we tell those stories well. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Dan, it's such a pleasure. And there you have it, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Nicole. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And a huge shout out to the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast for helping make this happen. Vortex Optics, The Average Conservationist, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, wasp broadheads and last but not least ozonic scent elimination units man please go out support the companies that support this podcast make sure you're following the nine finger chronicles on instagram and social which is instagram (laughs) so facebook instagram we are on go wild as well Uh, that's a, a nice app that you guys need to go check out other than that i think we're good Hopefully, everybody has a great day, man. Send good vibes out to the universe, and I swear to God, you'll get them back, man. Uh, I love every one of you. Have a good rest of your evening, day, month, week, year, and we'll talk to you next time.